scripture reading for today is from Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 to 26. And it can be found on page 6 of your bulletin if you would like to read along. Philippians 1. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor, labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Jesus Christ will abound on account of me. Buenos días. La lectura de hoy viene del libro de, de la Carta a los Filipenses, capítulo 1, versículos 18 al 26. Es más, seguiré alegrándome, porque sé que, gracias a las oraciones de ustedes y a la ayuda que me da el Espíritu de Jesucristo, todo esto resultará en mi liberación. Mi ardiente anhelo y esperanza es que en nada seré avergonzado, sino que con toda libertad, ya sea que yo viva o muera, ahora como siempre, Cristo será exaltado en mi cuerpo. Porque para mí, para mí el vivir es Cristo y el morir es ganancia. Ahora bien, si seguir viviendo en este mundo representa para mí un trabajo fructífero, ¿qué escogeré? No lo sé. Me siento presionado por dos posibilidades. Deseo partir y estar con Cristo, que es muchísimo mejor. Pero por el bien de ustedes, es preferible que yo permanezca en este mundo. Convencido de esto, sé que permaneceré y continuaré con todos ustedes para contribuir a su jubiloso avance en la fe. Así, cuando yo vuelva, satisfacción en Cristo Jesús abundará por causa mía. You'll humor me. I'm going to try to preach with a cough drop in my mouth. And so if you hear it knocking around, that's what it is. Uh, picked up a little bit of a cold over the last couple of days. And so we'll see how this goes. Uh, but just wanted to throw in that disclaimer. <laughs> but first, let's pray because I'm going to need God's strength. Jesus, I bring myself and all of us to you because we confess we're weak. Uh, we need help. Um, we can't understand the mind and the heart of God just with human resources. We need the help of your spirit. We need the face of your son before us. So Jesus, would you come near to us and show us all that you are, that you would make this passage, these words, your word to come alive to change our life, to change our church, to change our neighborhood, even to change our world. Do this for your glory, that you might be exalted. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So what makes you happy? What makes you happy? What gives you joy in life? Thought about that question recently? Or maybe the flip question gets at the same idea. What is it that brings you down? What ruins your day? What, what is it that would ruin your life? There's a depressing thought, right? Where does your joy come from? I tried to take a little notice this past week about the little ways in which my happy-o-meter goes up and down. What is it that causes that? Just noticing how much my happiness, my joy, I don't know about you, is shaped by, driven by how many hours of sleep I get. You know, even my daughter, uh, four years old, has started to say, Daddy, you're grumpy. You should get more sleep. Wise girl, right? Or the weather. <laughs> Perfect day to be talking about this. Just how ornery I can get when I'm hot, sweaty, when it's humid, right? How dependent upon the weather I am to experience joy or my health. I caught this cold and yesterday I actually complained to Paula. I think she asked me a, a simple favor around the house and I, I actually said to her, I, I don't think you realize how sick I really am. <laughs> I mean, how whiny is that? Or noticing how much my happiness can hinge simply on being right. Because I love being right. I don't know about you. And Thursday afternoon, yeah, a little shout out to being right over here. Thursday afternoon, I was Facebooking with some friends about an important topic, the NBA Finals. And I said, look, LeBron James and the Cleveland Cavaliers, they're going to hit a wall very soon. I know that they have to, playing too many minutes, overextended, right, short rotation. My guess is, I don't know if it's this game or next game, they're going to get blown out by 15 or 20 points. And I was right. <laughs> and I loved Thursday evening just gloating with myself and a few friends about how I got that right. Significant things, right? Or how much my happiness is tied to how other people are treating me. Whether people respect me. Uh, whether my kids are listening to me. Uh, how life is going around me. And as I'm thinking about all these different things and noticing throughout the week, Noticing a couple things, my happiness, my joy, first of all, just how fickle and temperamental it is. So many ups and downs. And secondly, maybe that's because I'm noticing how much my happiness is held hostage to my circumstances. My joy, my sense of being lifted up, my smile is so anchored in what's going on around here, not here. Which leads me to a third observation, and that is just how different, therefore, my heart is from that of the Apostle Paul. He's dealing with some serious, stressful, painful circumstances. We talked about this a little bit last week. He's under house arrest, chained to a Roman soldier 24-7. He's awake. A soldier's watching him. He's asleep. A soldier's watching him. He's going to the bathroom. Dude's still watching him. As a prisoner, Paul is stripped not only of his freedom, but also his privacy, even his dignity. As we learned last week, Paul has colleagues who've been soiling his reputation, who've been kind of dancing on his grave. 
happy, in fact, that he's now in prison because now's their time to shine. To many, and maybe even to Paul, maybe in his most vulnerable moments, his ministry career suddenly is looking like a failure. He has every reason to be overwhelmed with fear. It's why he even talks about having sufficient courage in verse 20. After all, he mentions death and dying a few times in verses 20 and 21 because he knows on even any given day it's a real possibility he might be executed. In many ways, life could not be much worse for the apostle as we would normally evaluate life. And yet he says the most unimaginable thing in verse 18. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. What? What are you talking about? I don't think it's a glib, over-spiritualized kind of happiness that doesn't really touch down with reality. In fact, in other letters, Paul talks openly about being disappointed, despairing, even depressed. He's not being weirdly masochistic, nor is he denying the harshness of life. And yet, even in the worst of circumstances here, he's talking about rejoicing, despite the frustrations and the failure, despite the betrayal and the heartache, despite the shame and the fear and the threat of death. He has a deep, settled, inner joy. Indeed, he's got joy unchained. You want some of that? You want some of that. So where does it come from? How does Paul have such a, a joy despite the circumstances? This passage is an answer to that question. You see, Paul says, yes, and I will continue to rejoice. Why, Paul? Why do you continue to rejoice? Well, verse 19, for or because I know, and then he tells us what it is that he knows that gives him a foundation upon which he can stand that his soul might soar. And what he tells us is that he's living according to a different center He's living with a different center, and he's living according to different goals. We're going to look at both of those pieces briefly in our remaining time. A different center to his life, and therefore different goals in his life. So first of all, what Paul tells us is that he's got a different center when he's facing challenges. We find this at the heart of the passage, the belly of the passage, right there in verse 21. Where Paul says, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. To live is Christ, to die is gain. One commentator puts it this way, that here in this sentence, Paul reveals the deepest motives of his life. Another commentator puts it this way, Paul's life finds its total meaning in Christ. To me, to live is Christ. Christ is life. Not just Christ gives me life, or Christ makes my life better, or Christ fixes my life. Christ is my life. Christ is my everything in life. Because Christ is the one, the Son of God, 
who though had every right as God to judge me, instead chooses to forgive me simply by his grace. Christ who did not reject and abandon me and yet rather drew near to me, coming in the person of a human being, Jesus of Nazareth, taking on human flesh that he might stand as my representative on the cross, the cross which was sort of a wooden proverbial judgment throne where he took not just nails and thorns, but the very wrath of God upon his soul, invisible and yet eternal. The wrath of God that he bore, hell itself, in my place, that I might have life, that I might have hope, that I might have eternity, that I might have God. As Paul puts it later in this letter in Philippians 3.8, Therefore, I consider everything in life garbage compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. In other words, he's saying in life, he, he's just giving up more and more of everything else so that he might gain more and more of Christ. Because he's sort of added up everything that's valuable in life, and maybe you can do that in your own head. Maybe positions of significance or maybe joys of relationship or maybe different blessings in life add it all up. And he says that in comparison, in honest comparison, he found Christ to be more valuable, supremely valuable, comparatively making all valuable things look like garbage in comparison, valuable, that he would gladly give up everything in order to get more of Jesus. So that all of his life, he would say, is defined as gaining more of Christ. Do you feel this way? Gaining more of his love, gaining more of Christ's presence, knowing more of Christ's freedom, knowing more of Christ's spirit and his power in your life, knowing more of Christ's weakness and suffering that you can identify with those as he identified with you, knowing more of Christ's mercy, more of his compassion, more of his patience, his gentleness to you, to you. That your soul would swim in the person of Christ. His life is defined as gaining Christ. Such that Paul starts then to talk about death as gain. Because he knows that Christ has defanged death itself. That's what Paul means in verse 20 when he says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed. He's talking about the shame of being morally exposed and naked before God on judgment day. Jesus took that in my place so that death is no longer the doorway to eternal judgment because Jesus was judged on the cross for me, but now death is the doorway to eternal joy. I mean, what hope is this? Do you know that if you have Christ, if you have embraced him, as your representative and the lover of your soul before God in your place. Death is no longer 
your worst nightmare. Death is divine portal into the presence of eternal joy. Christ himself. Paul knows that death has been utterly and radically transformed. That to die is to be with Christ. And if you've lived your whole life believing and banking on Christ being life to you and the meaning of life to be to gain more and more of Him by any means possible, then if to die is to be with Jesus eternally, then you can say with Paul and with trembling, to die is gain. Who can talk like that? And I say this because I know just how many of you have been plagued by the harsh realities of death. In the past weeks, in the past months, whether near or far, the ravages of cancer, the loss of little children, the terrors of life all around us, the realities and the horrors of death. To think, to think, the hope of Christ is that death, which is by all measures the ultimate form of loss, the loss of just everything, might be transformed. That death might to you be gain. That you could talk like Paul and to talk of the blessedness of Christian death. To be able to declare that somehow Death is better by far. Of course, it doesn't mean that there's no place for grieving when loved ones die. There's real grief and real loss. Tears are right. The grace of God frees us for greater tears to really dive in to the real losses and sorrows that we experience. And yet mixed in now by the hope of the gospel is the heart that can say, better by far is to be with the one who is life to me. And so what is life to you, dear friends? What is life to you? For many of us, to live is to be tough. To live is to be successful. To live is to be good. To live is to be reputable. To live is simply to be happy. To live is what is it for you? To live is family. To live is friends. To live is marriage. To live is career. Paul says, no, to live is Christ. And when to live is Christ, you can lose everything and still have Christ, and life is gain. But if to live is marriage and you lose your marriage, then you have no life. If to live is career and you lose your career, then you have no life. If to live is friendship and you lose that friend, then you have no life. If to live is surface happiness and you lose that happiness, then you have not life. And some of you know exactly how that feels.
Do you know the durability, the infinite, impenetrable, circumstance-free durability of a life that is a life in Christ? Here is the heart of the secret of what the Apostle Paul has a joy that is therefore untouchable by the pains and the horrors of a broken world. Do you have that? Do you have him? He's got a different center, and of course that shows up therefore in different goals. We'll move through this quickly. Paul shows throughout this passage that therefore Christ being life to such a degree that even death is seen as gain he says, therefore, my life is just oriented in different directions. I have a joy that's rooted in totally different goals in life. Number one, my liberation. The goal of my liberation. Verse 19, check this out. He says, I rejoice for I know that what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. What, will happen, what has happened to me, these trials, this suffering, this imprisonment, will turn out for my deliverance. Now, at first glance, it might sound like Paul is simply being talked about, he's simply talking about being delivered from jail. I rejoice because I know that pretty soon I'm out of here. And we would all say, well, sure, that makes pretty much sense because that's how we think. I'm happy because I'm almost done with this pain or trial. But if you look closely, well, you can't hear in this translation, but what Paul actually says is, what has happened to me will turn out for my salvation. My salvation. In other words, for my growth and my glory. You see, the Bible talks about salvation in many ways. It talks about it as a past event, my past salvation, as Paul has said in Ephesians 2, by grace you have been saved, forgiven, freed from the penalty of sin. But sometimes the Bible also talks about salvation being in the present. In the next chapter, Paul is going to say, you need to work out your salvation. That is, battle with the presence of sin in your life, growing in righteousness and holiness and in faith. Sometimes, though, the Bible talks in the future, future salvation, and this is what Paul is touching on here. That one day, when Christ returns, he will blot out all the presence of sin, not just its penalty and not just its power, but the presence of sin. He's going to make all things right. He's going to make you right. And all of these trials, Paul is saying, is working for my growth in Christ to become more like the perfection of Christ that I one day will be. That even my chains, even my sorrows, even my pains are being worked together by the grace of God for my liberation from sin and sorrow, for my spiritual growth. Can you understand, I don't know if you're like me, typically my goal in the face of harsh circumstances is my comfort. Not my spiritual liberation, my comfort. Just end it, God. <laughs> and that's a proper cry. There's nothing wrong with longing for that. But is it, is it the only thing I ever long for? 
Sometimes I'm so obsessed with being saved from my circumstances that I don't realize that sometimes those harsh circumstances, even that pain, that very thing that you might be trying to run from might be the very thing that God has introduced into your life to save your soul. God will use my chains for my spiritual growth. Paul is saying these very things, these very things are saving me. This suffering is changing me, making me more like Jesus, teaching me to trust in him, showing me how to put the anchor of my soul into something more durable, as we said, giving me the character of Christ, patience and faithfulness and gentleness and learning to walk by faith and not by sight. He's aiming for a different goal. His spiritual liberation, his progressive sanctification, his growth in Christ. As William Cooper, the great Christian poet from the 18th century put it, ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. The very pains and trials, dear suffering friends, may be the very instruments that God has placed in your life to give you greater grace. Number two, Paul's goal is not just his liberation, rather than his comfort, not just his liberation, but also Christ's exaltation. Christ's exaltation. In verse 20, he says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. And that word exalted, if you were to see it in the Greek, it starts with the prefix mega. Paul wants Jesus to be mega in his life. He says, whatever the circumstances, whether I survive or if I'm executed, whether in life or in death, I want Jesus to be seen as really, really big. Supersize him. That is my ambition. That is my passion. And it's usually the last thing in our minds when we're hurting. What would it look like to be so in love with Jesus that your highest ambition is that he might be made known in all things in your life? That people would look to you and look at you in your living and yes, even in your dying. And by what they see and what they hear, they would say, well, I see this dear friend, but what I really see is that Christ is great and lovely and mighty and worthy of my life too. My typical goal in times of trial is my ego, 
my exaltation, not Christ's. God, I'm hurting. Help me to look good in this. <laughs> God, I'm really scrambling and life is a mess. Help me to look like I'm at least not so messy. Uh, God, help me to be happy because I'm just tired of not being happy. Am I ever concerned about Christ's name and Christ's fame, setting aside my own name and fame? To be so saturated with the love of Jesus, the saving, gracious love of Christ, that my great passion would be that he would be exalted whether in life or by death. Paul's own reputation was being assaulted. His legacy was at stake in his suffering. And yet all he cared about was that Christ would be exalted. If that is a goal for you in all things, it becomes the fertile soil from which true gospel joy can take root because Christ can be exalted in all things and therefore I can rejoice in all things. Thirdly and lastly, not just my liberation and Christ's exaltation, Paul sets out as a goal, others' jubilation. Others' jubilation. Look at verse 22. He says, if I'm, if I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Paul is saying, I, I just don't know what I would rather have to depart and be with Christ because die is gain or to continue living and having a good ministry with you whom I love, my crown and my joy. In verse 24, it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Verse 25, I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. I mean, just what's surprising about it, if you just take it for what Paul is saying, it's amazing for all that Paul is going through. He's thinking about other people. <laughs> when I'm going through a hard time, I'm just thinking about me. I mean, I told you earlier, I'm hurting a little bit, a little bit sick yesterday. Paul asked me to help out with one load, of one, one load of laundry. I'm like, do you even realize how sick I am? <laughs> My usual goal, I don't know about you, when times are tough, when the body's hurting, when the heart is aching, when life feels threatening, is that others serve me, that others would help me, that others would comfort me, that others would give to me. But by the power and grace of Christ, Paul inverts it all, and he's not even thinking about himself. His concern, his passion is that he might serve others, that he might help others, that he might comfort others, that he might give to others. That their spiritual progress, which he defines as joy in faith in Christ, is what is driving him to say, well, you know, at the end of the day, as great as it would be, as life-fulfilling as it would be for me to depart and be with Christ, that's going to come. So I would rather in this time remain with you and to walk with you and to grow with you for your good and not mine. To see you boast in Christ, to see you rejoice in Christ, to find him to be your highest joy, that that might abound 
because of our time together. A different goal from the goal that I usually have in my heart. How about you? To put others first rather than to be lost in self-pity, to be lost in my interests and my needs. Could joy take off once I take off my eyes from myself? Once I fix my eyes on Christ and his exaltation, once I fix my eyes not on my own comfort, but on my spiritual liberation. All of this stemming from a new center that is centered upon Christ himself that I might confess and you together with me to live as Christ and therefore to die as gain. That if we could see Jesus in this way, that maybe, just maybe, we might be able to start to say, together with the Apostle Paul, despite the failure and the frustrations, despite the betrayal and the heartache, despite the shame, the fear, and even the threat of death, I will continue to rejoice with a joy unchained. Let's pray. Would you please let it be so, Lord Jesus? And so please give us more of yourself and set us free that we might rejoice in you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand together and let's sing. Joy and peace. 
you have a seat. I want to pause and ask if you have any questions. We like to do a little Q&A uh, each week just to give you a chance to process and digest and apply uh, some of the things that were taught or not taught as clearly as might be helpful. So happy to clarify any points as well. If you could ask a question, that'll help our back and forth. But if you could also uh, word it in a way that everyone can understand regardless of spiritual background. Well, it's got a good mix of folks, which we love. But yeah, Steve. Yeah. Yeah, the question is, um, so the resolution that I mentioned earlier in the service uh, relating to repentance for the civil rights era, uh, failures of our denomination, um, that was deferred to next year, meaning at that meeting the language will be perfected, some pieces will be um, added, uh, there's a desire for further uh, consultation together with the African American pastors in our denomination who also helped work on stuff this time as well. Um, so that will be uh, finalized at next year's General Assembly, which will be in Mobile, Alabama. And uh, so in the meanwhile, uh, right, uh, in the meanwhile, um, congregations and presbyteries are simply urged on their own initiative to grapple with things in preparation uh, for what will be a significant um, final call uh, next year. But there's no specific or even mandated steps to be taken um, in the coming 12 months. But from the uh, statement that I read that we signed on to, um, there's definitely a will uh, to do that. In fact, what was described as a, if, if, if God didn't see fit for us to enact this this year, then could it be that he is calling us to a full year of repentance instead? And so it's worth considering. Uh, are there things that we could even do as a congregation or that we could do in partnership with others in light of that in the coming 12 months? It's a good question. Other questions? 
about our General Assembly or about today's passage. Kwasi. Yeah.